Hello and welcome to the Harvard EdCast, a series of conversations with thought leaders in the field of education from across the country and around the world. I'm your host, Matt Weber, and today we crack the binding of the children's book. This post-bath, pre-sleep ritual of many may be at a crossroads, but who better to ask for direction than our guest today? An author of dozens of children's books, she is the two-time Newbery Medal recipient by penning The Giver and Number the Stars, You've likely seen her name, read her books. Now enjoy her voice and wisdom. <laughs> Welcome to the EdCast, Lois Lowry. Uh-oh, I didn't know you were going to ask for wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for allowing us to record in your lovely home. I'm not surprised to see so many books around here. You haven't seen anything yet. This is just one room. There are many rooms of books in both my houses. Oh, it's really great having you. Now, when you began your career as an author, why decide to write books for children? Actually, I didn't. I began as a journalist and a photographer, wrote for magazines. Fiction was my first love. I thought of myself as a fiction uh, writer for adults, but it's very tough to get fiction published, either for children or adults. And so I was struggling along with that while working as a journalist. I published a short story in a magazine, Story for Adults, but it was autobiographical. It was the voice of a child. A children's book publisher read it, wrote to me and said, would you consider writing a book for young people? So I wrote my first book with that invitation. And it was after I began to get the response from kids and began to realize that writing for kids is more important than writing for adults because you're, you're affecting them at a time when they're still changing. And uh, things that you write may may affect them for the rest of their lives. So I gradually, I did both for a while. Gradually, I turned my attention completely to writing for young people. Now you write about difficult subject matters, murder, uh, illnesses, racism. And anecdotally, my first exposure to the Holocaust was, I think, through Number of the Stars. Okay. Uh, why focus on such difficult subjects? Well, I, I will add that out of my many books, some are completely lightweight and silly as well. But uh, the ones that attract attention of teachers and critics are the ones that, with, that deal with uh, not necessarily controversial, but often difficult subjects. And frankly, that's what fiction is about. Uh, if you write about fluff and nothing, uh, it's not very exciting for the writer, and it certainly isn't that exciting for the reader, unless you're concentrating on humor, which I've done at times. But even in my humorous books, and many people of your age and the age of your audience will remember perhaps my series of books about a character named Anastasia Krupnik, who lived in Cambridge, whose father was a professor at Harvard. Humorous books, sort of light. Uh, on the surface, but each of them dealt also with a serious topic. In the very first book, Anastasia, age 10, uh, experiences the death of, a, of an elderly grandmother. So, uh, I, you know, I try to deal with things that matter to kids and things that kids wonder about and things that kids will experience later in their lives. Now, as a writer, how do you get in the different mindsets when you're going to be writing a serious book, when you're going to be writing a silly book? Well, I suppose that's just the way I am naturally. I, I, I keep both those things in my consciousness all the time, and, and I can be either serious or silly, depending on the occasion, or sometimes inappropriately. Uh, and so it's not difficult for me to go back and forth. Now, recently you appeared in a documentary called Library of the Early Mind. Tell us a little bit about what your role in that film was, and what, what's the film about? 
Uh, I'm probably the wrong person to ask because I just uh, appeared briefly as a talking head. I happened to be in Providence at that time at a conference where a number of well-regarded children's book writers were, and I believe the filmmaker lives in Rhode Island. He came to the conference with his equipment and with our permission and, and uh, interviewed uh, various writers there. But then I can see from the film that he went around and, and interviewed a lot of people in their homes and in other places. So the film is about children's literature, literature for children, uh, as well as illustration. There's a segment uh, focusing on Jerry Pinckney, a wonderful illustrator. Uh, and more than that, I guess I can't say what it's about, what the thrust is, except an appreciation of the people who spend their adult lives working on behalf of children. With the role of technology emerging, especially in the children's literature world, how do you see that influencing people writing books, knowing that they could turn into TV shows and things like that? Well, uh, the, the role of TV shows in film has always been there, and I've been through the dubious pleasure of seeing two of my books turned into very bad TV movies some years ago, and then the less dubious but kind of strange experience of watching The Giver in Hollywood now for 14 years. <laughs> so now and then I go to Los Angeles and talk to the movie people, and, and then more years pass. Uh, I think the, the thing that's um, really more of a concern for writers is the uh, dawn of electronic books and what that will mean for real books. And I think publishers don't know yet. Uh, it's going to affect all of us as both readers and writers and certainly publishers, but it's the, the jury is still out about the ways in which it will affect us. So knowing what exists with technology, how does that affect you as a writer? It really doesn't. Um, film and, and TV, film and video, uh, affect me only tangentially, of course, after I've written a book. <clears throat> I happen to be, as a former photographer, a very visual person. So I write in a very visual way, I think, and that potentially makes my books translate well into other media. Uh, as far as the electronic books, <clears throat> I don't even think about that when I'm writing. Those deal with words. Eventually, electronic books will deal with illustration, but I'm not an illustrator. So I write in the same way, with the same words, uh, with the same attention to language that I always have. <clears throat> Some of my books already are on uh, Kindle, I know, because I have one. Not that I sit around reading my own books, but I know I've given permission for some of them to, to be uh, put out there that way. But uh, the, the future, I, I guess I just don't know. Uh, but it doesn't affect me as a writer. And what has been the process now of watching your very illustrious book go through the Hollywood process and, and what's going on with The Giver over these past 14 years? <clears throat> well, it's been... Uh, I suppose you could call it a kind of roller coaster ride. In in the beginning, when, I, as I mentioned, two of my books were made into bad TV movies. Set those aside. Suddenly, Hollywood was there beckoning for a real movie, in the theaters, uh, for a book that had become very popular with kids. So that was kind of exciting to think, to hope that they would translate it well, do it well. I happen to love movies. Uh, I'm not involved in the filmmaking, but. <clears throat> they have included me in, in uh, letting me know what's going on. But oh, as the years have passed, and I've now read four different screenplays and been through several producers and had a brief 
two-year fling with Jeff Bridges being my best friend. And now he doesn't call, he doesn't write. Uh, it's become more amusing than anything else. Uh, I don't lie awake nights uh, thinking about the excitement of my film uh, coming to the screen. I may well be dead by then. <laughs> I'm getting old. Well, hopefully that's not the case. Now, some of my favorite children's books are, are associated with people and places. They're, they're memories of my mother reading books to me before I went to bed. Are any such memories for you as a daughter, as a mother? Oh, both, uh, and as a granddaughter. Uh, I was born into a family that valued books. I was fortunate that way because I know there are many kids who, who don't have that early experience, but my mother had been a teacher before she married. She always read to us, and I had a sister three years older who, when she went to school, learned to read, then she became the one who practiced at home by reading to her little sister, and she's the one who taught me to read. When World War II began, and I was born in 1937, my father was a career army officer. So off he went to the Pacific, and my mother took her children, me, my sister, and a baby brother, to live with her parents back in Pennsylvania. So I found myself in my grandparents' house, and there it became my grandfather who read to me, and whose version of what one should read to children consisted of surprisingly adult books from his collection. Uh, maybe not. Maybe adult is not the right word, but my mother would be reading things like Winnie the Pooh and Mary Poppins, and my grandfather would be reading uh, O. Stevenson and uh, Kipling, uh, more more classics. And so I was exposed to that as well. But the, as well, the important thing is what I remember most is not the material that was read to me, but the feeling of sitting on somebody's lap. I can, I can still feel my grandfather's tweed jacket against my cheek as he read. Sometimes things that I didn't even understand, it didn't matter. So it seems like read Kipling to a two-year-old <laughs> equals famous author. <laughs> uh, and I should add as well <clears throat> that I had four children, and they grew up with the same experience, living in a house filled with bookcases and books and with parents who read to them. How does it make you feel to know that most high schoolers are reading your books in the country? You know, it's not actually <clears throat> only in the country because uh, The Giver, in particular, has been translated into, I think, now 30-some languages, and I hear from kids around the world. <clears throat> the, the, the thing that's very gratifying to me is the feeling that perhaps in some way kids around the world, and also Number of the Stars is taught around the world, uh, are reading the same material, reacting to the same stuff, writing to the author, and they all email me through my website. Uh, and it may be a kind of bond, a kind of unifying experience. That's, that's uh, kind of overwhelming. Last question, Miss Lowry. Do you ever reread your own books? And if you do, do they mean anything new now? I rarely reread them, except that <clears throat> I'm often asked to speak to, I, I've just returned from speaking to the Pennsylvania English Teachers Association Convention. <clears throat> and I picked up one of my own books, borrowed it from a woman who had it in her hand, and read a passage to give an example of something. <laughs> and to my dismay, discovered there was a typo in it. So uh, I just got back yesterday. Uh, this afternoon, I will call the publisher and see if it's too late to change that in new editions. But I don't sit down and reread whole books. What happens, though, is that because I hear from readers, I hear what they're getting from the books. I hear their experience, and I realize it's different from mine, and I become aware of 
of how subjective reading is uh, in a wonderful way. What they're reading is not what I wrote because they're bringing their experience to it. I brought my own experience and my own sense of what things look like, but they're bringing up something different. And so the book that they read is not the book that I wrote, and I think that's a good thing. Very grateful of all the books that you have written. The Harvard EdCast is very pleased to have Lois Lowry on our show this week. Thank you. This has been the Harvard EdCast, a production of the Harvard Graduate School of Education. I'm your host, Matt Weber. Thank you kindly for listening. The Harvard Graduate School of Education, working at the nexus of practice, policy, and research.